awesome God, holy God, we humbly come before you now to hear your living, breathing word. God, what a privilege. Help us not to take it lightly, Lord, but to treat it reverently and with great fear. For you are a holy God, and our ways are certainly not your ways. Lord, so we come to you humbly in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only reason we can come to you, holy God, this morning and hear your word by your spirit. We pray for Johnny. Grant him strength, O God. Speak forth. Use him as your instrument. By your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning, everyone. We are in Acts chapter 18 this morning. I realize that some of you might have missed the past couple of weeks or, or one of the sermons, so let me just get you up to speed in terms of where we are at. Um, this was very clear on my 20-inch laptop screen, but obviously not on the big screen. We've gone uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were in uh, Thessalonica, which is right above my finger, right up at the top left. We're in Thessalonica and then Berea. And you remember in Acts 17 that Kevin, Kevin Pott shared with us about um, the Bereans searching the scriptures and holding the scriptures as our ultimate source of authority and ultimate source of truth. And then last week they traveled down to Athens, a little town called Athens. And that's where we uh, learned about the, the temple in the Areopagus to the unknown God. And the apostle Paul preaches Christ to them. And now they've gone um, they're in the bottom left. They've traveled from Athens to Corinth, a one-day journey, and they've arrived in the city of Corinth. And uh, it's a bit unusual because on, on Paul's second missionary journey, it lasted about two and a half to three years. And in each city or town, they spend a few months tops. But as they travel to the city of Corinth, they would stay there for a year and a half. So they spend at least half of their time in the city of Corinth. So it's an important city, but it's just covered in 17 verses in our passage and the time there. So let's have a little look at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. 
And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Let's just pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that we can bow before you in your presence. We thank you that we can worship you as the, the great I am, the one who rules over all. Lord, we thank you that we can come to your word, the source of ultimate truth. Lord, the, the reason why we're here is to meet around your word. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. Speak to us in a way that we can't but listen and in a way that we can't but obey. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we've got three points this morning. The first one is that Paul works as a tent maker, receiving encouragement from Aquila and Priscilla. Last week we looked at Paul in the city of Athens, a city that was known as an intellectual center of the ancient Greek world a city with less than 10,000 people. But Corinth that he's just traveled to in Acts 18 verse 1, it was very different. It wasn't known for being intellectual. It was known for its strong economy. It was a city of nearly three quarters of a million people. It was like moving from Silksworth to London. Some were known for, for its, its small size and intelligent people to <laughs> a large city that uh, is known for its strong economy. Totally different place. This city of Corinth was right by the sea. It had two separate ports. It was a commercial center for business. And you can, almost, you can almost hear the Apostle Paul thinking out loud. He's thinking strategically. If trade can radiate out from Corinth, both from land and sea, then surely the gospel can radiate out too. Paul realizes that this is an important city the gospel to spread from, which is one of the reasons why he's here. And we read in verse 2 that he decides to stay with this Jewish couple called Aquila and Priscilla, and he starts working as a tent maker. It was likely by this time that this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, were both Christians. They were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be surprised to learn that Paul knew how to do anything practical. You might think that you might know something about Paul's past, that he was an educated man. In fact, he was educated by one of the top Jewish rabbis. The Apostle Paul, when he was young, learned from a very renowned, well-known Jewish rabbi called Gamaliel. He was taught from the book of the law, the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures inside out. In fact, 
the Apostle Paul would say in Acts 22 that he was brought up in the city of Tarshish at the feet of Gamaliel, this famous Jewish rabbi. His education was intense. It was thorough. He was brought up knowing all there was to know about the Jewish law. And yet it was a requirement at that time for young aspiring Jewish rabbis to learn a trade. And so this young Paul learned how to work leather, something practical. The Greek word for tent maker means a leather worker, someone who would take animal hides, normally goat skins, and work them and sew them together to make tents. And so Paul, as a young man, he learned to trade. And so when he comes to Corinth, he decides, well, at least at the start, I'm going to practice this trade and I'm going to earn my own money. It's one of the reasons why he stays with his husband and wife in the first place, because they're also tent makers. It's nice, isn't it? Because if I was a tent maker owning my own business, the last thing I would want is another tent maker coming and staying with me and taking away my business. But that's not what happened here. There's no rivalry. This couple are hospitable and welcoming to him. And there's also lots of work to go around. There's lots of tents to make. You see, the, the Roman government required tents for housing its army. A normal t canvas tent in the northern climates was no good. They needed a tougher, war warmer animal hide. That's what was required. So there's lots of demand for this product. So first and foremost, Paul practices this trade of tent making because he doesn't want to be a burden on other people financially, but also there's a demand for the product. And the other reason why he worked at this was because as yet there was no church established in that area. There was little source of income from other people. Now at that time, some scholars that I read, they, they say that at that time there were many heresies that were going around. And the, the heresies, those that were practicing them, they would move around different towns and cities. And they, their aim was to take money off people. Scholars tell us that it was common in that era for people to come from various cities with a new doctrine, a new teaching, and they would travel from one city to another and basically extort the money out of people. They would try to swindle people out of their hard-earned cash. But Paul coming to this new city, he wants to show that he's different. He's coming to this city with Christianity and he, he doesn't want to be like the other people. He doesn't want to take their money. He's there to preach Christ. He's there to preach the life-transforming power of the gospel. So he sets off making tents, but each Sabbath he's there at the synagogue preaching. No one should think that the making of tents was Paul's passion. His passion was his work in the synagogue. Now what about this couple that the Apostle Paul stays with while he's making tents? What about this couple, Aquila and Priscilla? Well, we could focus on how hospitable and caring they were, but the most striking thing to me as I prepared this message was just comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament and thinking about how many couples you can find in each. Now, have a think. Have a think about how many couples you can name in your head in the Old Testament. There's lots, aren't there? There's Adam and Eve. There's Abraham and Sarah. There's Isaac and Rebekah, Boaz and Ruth. Hannah and Elkanah, Lot and his wife. There's many that you can think of in the Old Testament. But have a think about how many couples you can name in the New Testament. That's a challenge. There's Mary and Joseph, okay. Obviously. There's Zechariah and Elizabeth. But there aren't very many, are there? There's not very many couples named in the New Testament. We know that Peter's got a mother-in-law. 
Don't know anything else about his wife. Don't know her name. Earlier in the book of Acts, we've looked at Ananias and Sapphira, but with their hypocrisy, they're not exactly a shining example of how to do marriage, are they? But in this picture of Aquila and Priscilla, you have a glimpse of a Christian marriage in the New Testament, which is rare. And because it's rare, I just wanted to take just a little bit of time to share some thoughts about this couple. Firstly, their names always appear together. Out of the six or seven times that this couple are mentioned in the New Testament, they're always, always mentioned together. They're a team. They do hospitality together. They do life together. Such was the effectiveness of their ministry as a team that they're never mentioned apart. Secondly, they experience great difficulty together. We read in verse 2 that they've had to get out of Rome because of the persecution of the Jewish people. The non-Christian Roman historian Suetonius wrote that Claudius the emperor banished Jews from Rome because of dissension and disorder. Many of the Jews were guilty of fighting and causing disorder against this new Christian teaching. And so we read that all of the Jews in one swoop around AD 49 were expelled from Rome. So this couple, they flee persecution. They have to leave their homes because of their faith. Thirdly, they work together. They were tent makers by trade in verse 3. They both do the same job day in, day out, making tents and selling their product. Fourthly, they become lifelong friends of Paul. We didn't read it this morning, but once Paul's time is finished in Corinth, he travels to Syria. And who are with him? Aquila and Priscilla. Perhaps 15 years after this chapter is written, when Paul's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.19, he urges Timothy to greet Aquila and Priscilla. They become lifelong friends of Paul. Fifthly, we're going to look at it next week when David shares God's word, but in verse 26 we read that they taught a man called Apollos the way of God more accurately. After Paul leaves this couple in Ephesus, they heard this couple hear a man called Apollos sharing the good news of the gospel, and they realized that his knowledge of the truth is lacking in certain areas, and so they discipled him. Apollos receives their words, and he travels to Achaia, and flourished in ministry there. So Aquila and Priscilla, in a private setting, share the scriptures with him and encourage a fellow believer and disciple him in the truth. Sixthly, we read in Romans 16, verse 3, that this couple risked their necks. That's what it says. They risked their necks for Paul. We read that they would risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, we don't have any other details. We don't know what that involved, but we know that they could have died for Paul, or ultimately for Jesus. Seventh, they used their home for church meetings. We read in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, that they had a church meeting in their own home in Ephesus. In other words, what they had, they were willing to use for the advancement of the gospel. And just lastly, this is a weird thing to say, I know that, but they may have had children what a strange line to use. They might have had kids. Why do I mention that? Why do I bring that, that up? If they did have kids, it appears that their lives were not centered on their children, but on Christ. They're willing to move anywhere, offer hospitality. Their lives aren't centered around their children. If they didn't have children, 
I'm sure that was a grief to them, but they still maximized their days for the Lord. Now, as you look and reflect on those eight things in Aquila and Priscilla's marriage, it's a challenge to our own hearts. It's a challenge to my heart in my marriage. Do I work together with my wife for the sake of the kingdom? Do you work together with your wife or your husband for the sake of the kingdom? Are you on the same page when it comes to offering hospitality like Aquila and Priscilla were? Are we willing through difficult times to commit ourselves to sharing the gospel with others? Are you united with your husband and wife when it comes to discipling other people in the church? That's a challenge. But I realize not everyone here this morning is in the same situation. Some are single. Some are married but have unsaved partners. But regardless of our situation, I believe Aquila and Priscilla are a challenge to us all in how they use their home, how they use their time, how they use their money, how they use their talents for the sake of Christ. If you're married, live for the kingdom and for the cause of Christ. If you're, if you're single, live for the kingdom and for the cause of Christ. If you're married to an unsafe partner, God sees how difficult that is. If you're married to a non-Christian, God sees how much more difficult it is to use your time. How much more difficult it is to use your money. How much more difficult it is to use your own home for God's glory. Because there's always the unsaved husband or wife to think of. God sees your heart and your struggles. But do what you're able. But your call is still to serve God's kingdom. But remember that you're not on your own. You have brothers and sisters by your side. So whether you're single, married to a Christian, married to a non-Christian, we're to serve God with faithfulness for God's glory. And Aquila and Priscilla lived for God right where they were. And we should do the same in whatever situation God has placed us in. As we've gone through Paul's missionary journeys, and we're in his second missionary journey now, it might be easy to think, if you're a woman, that much of the work in the early church was done by men. Yes, in the Apostle Paul, we see someone that was instrumental in bringing the gospel to the Jews and the Greeks and the Gentiles. But in this lady Priscilla, we see a woman who was instrumental in helping Paul, working with her husband even to plant churches. So if you're a lady here this morning, take encouragement that God uses both men and women for his kingdom. Priscilla could speak to people that Paul couldn't. Just like Priscilla, if you're a lady here this morning, you can reach people with the gospel, with encouragement, with many things that others can't. You can relate to people in a way that most men can't. You can use your talents for God's glory in light of what the scripture says. So Paul the tent maker receives encouragement from Aquila and Priscilla. And we have this challenge to work in whatever setting you find yourself in for God's glory. Let's move on to our second point. Paul receives encouragement from Silas and Timothy in verses 5 to 8. Boy, did Paul need encouraging. Apart from Aquila and Priscilla, this man is in a strange city. He's in one of the most wicked cities imaginable. 
Think of Las Vegas, but 10 times worse. In classical Greek at that time, there was a verb to act like a Corinthian. That literally meant to be sexually immoral. Corinth was a buzzword in ancient Rome for debauchery and filth. As Paul walked to the synagogue, as he walked to the shop, as he walked to sell his product, he would have been surrounded by this. He was going to need encouragement. Not only was there filth and sin around him, he had very little money, he wasn't particularly well health-wise, he had been persecuted constantly, and he was burdened by the task of sharing the gospel. And so what did God do? He sends his two friends along, Timothy and Silas in verse 5. Just when the Apostle Paul needed it most, God sent two people there to encourage him and to strengthen him. Because of these two men now joining Paul, we read in verse 5 that Paul gives up the tent making and devotes himself exclusively to the gospel, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was a Messiah. He gives up the tent making to focus on the real reason why he's there in Corinth, which is to preach the gospel. Isn't that often the case? Just when we need it most, God sends along someone to encourage us. Just when we need a word of encouragement, just when we need that word in season. God has someone share a scripture with us, a prayer, a Christian song, a link to a sermon. God sends the right people at the right time with the right words. Or sometimes just someone to listen. But it's always God that sends them. Praise God, he, he uses us together to encourage one another. Maybe as you reflect on your own Christian walk, you can think of the the many times that God has just sent someone along to light in your path, to show you that they're thinking of you and praying for you. A Barnabas, an encourager. Well, if that's the case, maybe, maybe you should tell them how much it meant to them. Perhaps you should share an encouragement with someone else. Now that you know how important it was to you at that time, share something similar with someone else. In Hebrews 12, 12, we read, and I think the King James Version puts it best, so put it up there. It reads, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. We've all been there spiritually, haven't we? Where at one point in time, we've been bent over double by the cares of this world. Where we've got such weak faith that it feels like we've got feeble knees. Where every time we go to do something in faith, it feels like we're going to fall flat on our face. Our faith just won't hold us up. It won't keep us walking. We, won't, we all know what it's like. So let's be sure to encourage one another in the faith. To strengthen one another. To lift up the hands which hang down. To strengthen the feeble knees. These two men, Timothy and Silas, in verse 5, they were just that boost of encouragement that Paul needed. Paul has been faithful in sharing the gospel, but you can almost sense this new energy, this new vigor that Paul gets from these two men. Paul continues in the same pattern that he's done throughout the missionary journeys, where he goes to the synagogue first to preach the gospel, but we read in verse 6 that he's opposed. He's opposed as a person, but more importantly, the Jews oppose Christ. In many versions in verse 6, it's translated, But when they opposed him 
and blasphemed. They aren't just opposing Paul. They're opposing the Almighty God. Paul leaves saying that he's going to preach to the Gentiles. When Paul hears what they say, you can almost hear him say out loud, Look, slander me. Spit at me. Say what you want about me. But don't say it about my Savior. That's enough. And he shakes the dust off his clothes. He shakes the dust off his feet. He wants nothing more to do with them. And he ignores them and he goes to the Gentiles. One commentator I read put it like this. The greatest curse God can ever bring upon any people in this world. The greatest curse God can ever bring upon any people in this world is to remove from them the light of the gospel. And this is what happened in this situation. The Jews rejected God. God took his word and sent it to the Gentiles. Paul stopped preaching in the synagogue. The result is that in verse 7 we read that on the Sabbath, Paul goes to worship with a man called Titius Justice. He moves his work from the public synagogue to a private house. And it's interesting the level of detail, isn't it? This man, Justice's house, it's right next door to the synagogue. We don't know if the fact that if that's important. We don't know if the fact that Paul is worshiping next door to the synagogue has got any part to play in the next part. But we read in verse 8, The ruler of the synagogue, a man called Crispus, great name, Crispus, believes in Jesus and is baptized. It might have been that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, while traveling there on the Sabbath, sees Paul worshiping. Maybe as Paul is preaching, this man is listening. Maybe Paul, on the Sabbath morning, has stood outside giving invitations to the house church. We don't know. But this important man, the ruler of the synagogue, gives his heart to Christ. In this passage in Acts, we see the same pattern that takes place throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Verses 4 to 5, Christ is preached. Verses 6 and 7, oh boy, there's opposition. Verse 8, what happens? We see Christ's triumph over opposition. In verse 8, we see Christ's triumph through saving souls. Paul had seen this time and time again. It's the pattern right through the book of Acts. Christ is preached, opposition, Christ's triumph. In verse 8, we read that many of the Corinthians who heard him were, were believed. Let's start again. Many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. God established his church in his time scale, on his terms, with his people. Now notice the order. The gospel is preached. Many who heard believed. Those who believed were baptized. Maybe you're sat here this morning and you're, you're looking at Paul's second missionary journey and thinking, well, what is this gospel that Paul's been bringing to the people? What is this gospel that Paul's been bringing? Well, the gospel can be summarized in six words. God is holy. I am not. That's the gospel. God is holy. I am not. And because of God's holiness, he cannot look on sin. Something has to change. What can I do? How can my sins be forgiven? How can I get right with God? 
It's as easy as A, B, C. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as your Savior. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how you get your sin problem dealt with. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul brought, that this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, died and rose again for sin once for all, a complete sacrifice so that your sin can be dealt with. That's the gospel that Paul brought. And that's how you get right with God. That's how Crispus got right with God. He admitted that he was a sinner. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and he confessed him as a Savior. So God uses Timothy and Silas to encourage him in proclaiming the message of the gospel. And their arrival frees up Paul to give up tent making and preach the gospel. Let's move on to our third point. Paul receives encouragement from God. Up to this point, the Apostle Paul has received encouragement from this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. He's received encouragement from two friends, Timothy and Silas. But now he receives encouragement from God. Let's remind ourselves of what verses 9 to 11 say. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Paul receives encouragement from God himself. It's interesting, the first words of that vision, isn't it? Do not be afraid. Why do you think those words were there? Well, because Paul was afraid. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging. One of the greatest teachers, greatest evangelists, greatest preachers, greatest writers, greatest church planters to ever walk this earth. And he needs to be told, do not be afraid. Because he was afraid. He's told that he's to keep on speaking. And we're told why he doesn't need to be afraid. For I am with you. What a comfort to Paul. That God was with him, surrounding him with peace and security. There's loads of examples in Scripture. I'm nearly finished, don't worry. There's loads of examples in Scripture of God being with his people and using these words, do not be afraid. One of my favorites is in 2 Kings 6. You've got an ungodly king, the king of Aram. And he surrounds this, this little city in Israel called Dothan. He comes with a mighty force of chariots and horses and foot soldiers. And he's got a foolproof plan, or so he thinks. He surrounds the city in this vice-like grip. No one can come in. No one can come out without his say-so. An Elisha's servant comes to him. He's totally flummoxed. And he says, Elisha, what are we going to do? Look, see this mighty force. What on earth can we do? Elisha's reply, do not be afraid. Those that are with us, are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, the reason why Elisha wasn't afraid was because he not only knew of the might of our God, he trusted in the might of our God. 
It wasn't just that he was aware of God's strength. He trusted in God's strength. It wasn't just that he had a head knowledge that told him that God is faithful, that God's going to protect his people. He trusted in God's faithfulness, that God would honor his promise to his people. In 2 Kings 6, we see the might of our God saying, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And here in Acts 18, we've got the same promise from the same God to Paul. Though he was surrounded in a vice-like grip by heathens, by pagans, by the sexually immoral, on every side, countless people against him, he didn't need to be afraid because more are the people on his side than on the side of the enemy. One with God is in the majority. And so it is with us. When we come to sharing this gospel, this promise stood for, for Paul, but don't forget it stands for you as well. Just like Elisha's servant looked on a situation that was totally frightening, totally overwhelming, totally hopeless. Just like that, we can lose sight of whose gospel it is that we're sharing. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our gospel. It's Christ. It's His gospel. If we were standing in our own strength to share it, boy, would we fall flat. But no, it's Christ's gospel. And He will protect us and bless us as we share it. God assured Paul of His presence and assures us of His presence. I am with you. God assured Paul of his protection and assures us of his protection. God assured Paul of his purpose. Paul's purpose was to teach the many people in that city. And God assures us of his purpose because God has a purpose and a plan for everyone here. This encouragement to Paul was enough to keep him going a year and a half in that city. As we said, up to this point, he spent a couple of months tops in any one place. In this city, he stays a year and a half. He's sharing the gospel. He plants a church. He shepherds the flock. He not only shepherds the church in Corinth, but during this time while he's there in that city, he also writes First and Second Thessalonians. So he's ministering to the wider church as well. It's amazing what this man does in the strength of God's promise. Now we read from verses 12 onwards that Paul is brought into court. I'm sure he's brought into court by these Jewish people. He's got these words from God ringing in his mind. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking, for I am with you. As he's dragged in before his accusers, before his enemies... He's dragged in, and I'm sure he's got that promise from God ringing around his mind. But we read in verse 14, just as Paul is about to speak, Gallio speaks for him and defends him. What a powerful God we serve. Paul didn't even have to open his mouth. The Jews that accused Paul of persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. But Gallio, the man that they're appealing to, doesn't have any interest in their claims. In verse 15, he talks about your own law. In other words, Gallio wasn't a Jew. It wasn't his responsibility. He wasn't interested in, in officiating over the Jewish law. He just wasn't interested. God protected Paul exactly as he should. 
as he said he would. Paul received encouragement from God, and we should do the same by studying and trusting in his word. Just in conclusion, we've seen Paul receiving encouragement in three different ways. He's received encouragement from a Christian married couple. He's received encouragement from two friends and from God. Let's be those who encourage each other in the faith, building each other up. Let's be those who in our marriages or singleness glorify God. Let's be those who trust God. We don't need to be afraid of speaking truth. We don't need to be afraid. God is with us. just want to finish by reading a couple of verses from Hebrews 10. It says in verse 24, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. The writer to the Hebrews tells us to consider one another, how we can spur one another on in love and good deeds. So let's be doing it. Encouraging the downtrodden and saturating ourselves in the Word of God to encourage ourselves, but also to encourage others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you use us. Lord, you could, you could, with your word in front of us, encourage us, and you do that. But you also use people. You also use our brothers and sisters to encourage each other and build each other up. So, Almighty God, we pray that you would help us to look out for one another, to encourage each other as iron sharpens iron. We pray that you would help us to sharpen one another in the, in the faith and in the truth. Strengthen us in the, in the truth of the gospel. Help us to have confidence in the gospel. We know that it's your truth for all people, for all time. Help us to depend in it, to encourage each other in it, and to strengthen each other by your word. Be with us, we pray, Lord, as we fellowship with each other. Help our conversations to be godly and seasoned with salt. In Jesus' name. Amen.